Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is James Mwangi, an entrepreneur from Kenya. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emma. Excited to be here. James, I know that you joined Dalberg as a founding member in 2002. And you started up Dalberg's first Africa office, which was in Johannesburg in 2007. And subsequently, you served as global managing partner of Dalberg's consulting business, guiding the formalization of its structure and governance as a global firm. And since 2014, you served as executive director of the Dalberg Group. So that's a really long time with Dalberg. What is Dalberg's mission and vision and what's been achieved during that period? So you're right. It has been hearing all of all of them, those roles back to back. It does feel like a very long time. Uh, but it's also gone by just like that. I feel like it's just yesterday that a few of us got together and and and, and set out to create this platform. Um, and the original vision, which has largely remained unchanged, is 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 to bring together world class professionals from around the world committed to this vision of a more inclusive and sustainable world for all, and particularly focused on this idea that all people everywhere deserve the right to achieve their full potential. Um, and, and that meant moving from an approach to social impact or to development work that said it's about this group of people who are the haves helping the have-nots uh, over there, and more around saying, what is it that's preventing parts of the world, parts of society from realizing their own full potential to address and improve their own conditions? And that involves understanding why do markets work or fail. It involves understanding what endogenous issues around policy kind of cause uh, societies to work or not work, what interventions to try and help address a situation actually result in in positive and and sustained systemic change. Um, And so that's been the work of Dalberg. And, you know, initially we started off with with what we knew. A lot of us were coming from a a background in in private sector management consulting. but over time, we've diversified to say, you know, yes, you need some consulting and analytics, but you also need data and research. You also need media and communications. Uh, you also need uh, implementation. All of the pieces of the Dalberg group are intended to kind of work towards this idea of unlocking potential, whether the potential is of a policymaker or a decision maker to kind of really materially address their situation or it's the potential of a society or a community to materially improve on one of the SDGs or on on multiple of the SDGs for that matter. Now, I know you're pivoting your focus more towards climate. Is that within Dalberg? And how do you see the role of Africa in all of this? So, you know, it's it's been interesting how climate has has popped up for me, Uh, you know, while like most people have been very concerned about the trajectory of climate change, it wasn't my principal focus professionally. Earlier on, I talked about a more inclusive and sustainable world. And folks at Dahlberg tended to sort themselves into those who are really into focusing on inclusive opportunity and economic livelihoods and so on and dignified livelihoods for the world's poor. That included myself. 
and those who are really concerned about sustainability, the challenges of climate, climate action, and the urgency of, of living within our planet's ecological bounds. And I respected and understood that work. It wasn't where I spent most of my time. I think what became interesting over the last few years was realizing the ways in which these were becoming, firstly, inextricably linked. One of the big reasons why we were struggling to see improvements in livelihoods for the world's smallholder farmers, for example, was the effect that climate change was having on their ability to, to actually farm their crops and improve their yields. Uh, that part was wi widely understood. The, the part that I became increasingly excited about, though, was a realization that over the next few decades, we're going to need to fundamentally restructure the world's economy if we are to avoid the worst of the climate disasters that are predicted. And in that restructuring lies a lot of opportunity. And in particular, sitting in Africa and looking at some of the challenges of a rising generation with uh, you know, a hundred million job gap over the next uh, 10 years in terms of the gap between the rate of job creation and the rate of workforce growth, it occurred to me that there's, there's a real opportunity here for the youngest continent, which numerically will be the most exposed to the consequences of climate change and is already feeling some of the earliest and heaviest impacts of climate change. Can that same continent be at the vanguard um, of addressing the climate crisis, not just through adaptation and mitigation, reducing emissions or avoiding emissions, but actually through restoration and removal? Uh, and I think one of the things that I've, I've become increasingly excited about is this idea that we can actually apply ourselves, apply science, apply the ways that you know, we, we go about organizing our lives and our economies towards removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere at massive scale, just as we are reducing emissions and just as we're preparing for some of the, the, the inevitable uh, impacts. If that last bit, if that removal and restoration can really pick up pace, it could not only help us address the climate challenge, it could also create the livelihoods and the opportunities that this young workforce is looking for um, as, they, as they enter the, the working age. I know you recently attended COP26 in Glasgow. How was that experience? Did you feel you were able to put Africa's opportunities and potential on the map? And do you feel other leaders are rising up to the challenge of responding to climate change? Yeah, so, so this was my first uh, time attending a COP. Um, and it was, uh, in some ways, there's so much new and, and interesting about it. Um, and I think I came away from the whole experience mostly energized. Um, I think on the formal program, you know, I think there's been a lot of coverage out there. I won't try to summarize it, but the sense was there were some hard fought agreements that went as far as we would have wanted to see, particularly around things like the continued build out of coal and other things. Um, but there was also global unanimity around the fact that this is an issue that will demand further action. And and I think the expectation that one meeting was going to get us exactly to where we need to be was probably unrealistic. But what struck me in all of the conversations I was a part of with people in industry and government and so on was no one was raising their hand and saying, you know, this is not that big a deal or why should we do something? It was really about, well, addressing this is hard. How do we do what we need to do? I think the one area where I was 
particularly disappointed though, but not surprised, was the limited progress that the world made on its commitment to developing countries around investment and deployment of financing to developing countries. Um, and the commitment in Paris was a relatively modest $100 billion. Uh, and even that very low bar compared to the trillions that will eventually be spent, even that low bar has proven out of reach. It's disappointing, but it's not surprising. And I think part of the, the reason it's not surprising is so long as I think we will continue to struggle to get real traction on climate action, as long as we're framing it as you know, a set of obligations uh, or purely a set of, it, it, there are obligations and there are real, there's real urgency in the, in, in the rich countries that benefited from damaging our atmosphere, helping others to, to manage that. But I think we'll only get real flow of resources once we can show that the solution exists in, in, in these investments, that we can actually change the trajectory. And there, what really stuck with me in Glasgow was the degree to which some of the leading thinkers on questions like restoration and removals are sharing my view uh, and, and, and coming to the same conclusion that actually places like Africa will be key to meeting net zero by, by 2050. This whole idea that if we know that some countries aren't going to get to net zero by 2050, and yet we want the planet to be at net zero by 2050, Mathematics says somebody is going to have to go massively net negative by 2050. And I think that um, you know, countries like the countries of Africa are well positioned because they're pretty close to net zero right now on a per capita basis. And if the world can make it worth their while, we can create jobs and create opportunities by going massively net negative. You know, out of these COPs, we always hear these ambitious pledges, we sometimes hear of agreements being signed, but the implementation, how do we know if countries are living up to what they pledged? How do we know if actions are actually taking place? Every year there's another COP with new pledges. So I, I, I think this is one of the areas where the role of the COP and the role of other activities and other platforms and other decision makers need to be kept distinct in our minds. I think what the COP does is it commits countries to, to taking measures and putting in place policies. But very few governments are the ones making the actual decision on, you know, does this plant get built or not? Or, you know, are these imports of, of, of this fuel happening or not? Is this technology being implemented or not? Right? Those are the decisions of enterprises uh, and individual citizens and businesses in their millions around the millions and billions around the world. And, and I think what we need to pay more attention to now is yes, the policy signals that the political leadership are sending, but just as much the scientific engineering and business progress that says, here is the investment that's going into a new technology. Here's the efficacy of that technology. Here's the rate at which it's being adopted by consumers. That piece needs to get more attention because that's the real speed limit in some ways. And for a long time, that stuff wasn't taking off because the policies weren't there to encourage it. But you can see from the number of green startups and the amount of capital flowing into innovations uh, in both minimizing our emissions and then also 
removing emissions and also building resilience and adapting to climate change, you can see people are starting to bake this into their expectations. There's a hopefully a new generation of professionals across a range of sectors that are really applying themselves to the hard questions of how do we maximize how much carbon plants take out of the atmosphere? And then what do we do with that biomass once it's ready? Or how do we use electricity to, to decarbonize? In those spaces, I think the more exciting progress is going to come from you know, the auto industry fundamentally transforming decades earlier than we thought even three years ago because one entrepreneur stole a march on them and is now you know, sitting on a company that's valued at greater than the next 10 combined. Um, that to me is what progress will look like. And can we repeat that for the construction industry? Can we repeat that for the power generation industry? Um, for digital, you know, for you know, digital processing and so on. There's so many sectors in which these pro- these leaps will happen, and as they happen, they'll create businesses, they'll create opportunities, and hopefully, they can create a new generation of jobs that will happen alongside and helped by policy, but doesn't depend purely on policy. James, you had very clear objectives of what you wanted to get from your time at Yale. Do you feel you got what you wanted? Um, I, I, I think the time at Yale has been fantastic. I, I, had, I had three aims. One was really digging into and, 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 and understanding the, the, some of the science and, and, and policy work happening around climate. And for that, I can think of few places that could have been better and a few ways to, better to spend the last few months than really engaging people at the School of Environment, at the Jackson Institute, elsewhere across the Yale community. I feel like I, I really did get that, that both grounding and a lot of new relationships and networks that, that would be really handy in the next phase. Um, I'd really wanted um, some space and time to kind of depressurize, you know, that, that, that happened a little bit. I think it became very exciting and engaging to pursue some of what was coming out of this process. And, and the piece that I just wish I had another six months was to really, you know, spend even more time with members of the Yale community outside of my areas of interest. Um, and just kind of being in this kind of rich intellectual community, um, which I found very stimulating when I was able to, but I still feel like I could I could spend another semester on campus and still feel like I was just getting started. The time has really flown. Time does flow. But James, thank you very much for all that you've done during your time here and for inspiring us all to think creatively about how to deal with climate change. Thank you, Emma. And thank you for the opportunity.